Good morning, everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily. This is Trevor Hall, and today we have our Friday morning long-form episode to wrap up the week. Thanks to everybody for tuning in each and every day this week. Uh, lots of updates out. Uh, you can go back to miningstockdaily.com and, and catch full rundown of all the episodes from the week. If you have any follow-up questions, feel free to shoot me an email, Trevor at clearcreekdigital.com and as always if you wouldn't mind please leave a review of the show on the network you use to listen to the podcast uh, i'm really excited to air this episode two segments and a pretty long episode actually because the first segment is a full hour with shrub capital First time he has been on the podcast. Very interesting experience and career leading up to this point. We break down a lot of kind of what he's seeing regarding China, uh, the metals industry because of China, and where the West needs to go to really uh, mitigate its dependence on uh, the Chinese uh, policies. So, it's a heavy one, but it's worth listening to. Lots to take away from that conversation, and Shrub is really does a great job of kind of opening up the dialogue of things to be watching as we continue to progress this reshoring. Uh, then Paul Harris comes on with Equinox Partners, and Equinox Partners put out some news not too long ago uh, regarding a little bit of uh, activists in the gold industry, but activists in regards to who's managing and sitting on boards of gold equities. So very fascinating conversation with them. Special thank you to Western Copper and Gold, Integra Resources, and Arizona Sonoran Copper for your continued support of the podcast. Let's jump into my conversation with Shrub Cap. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you again Monday. Welcome into our first segment of this Friday's long-form episode of Mining Stock Daily. Uh, this is a first for me, a uh, new guest, uh, somebody I have followed online from afar, have engaged with from time to time. Uh, just a ton of great information out on his uh, Twitter page. You can follow him at Agnostocks with three X's, but uh, in his uh, anonymity, he goes by... Sh- Shrub Capital. Shrub Cap. How are you, buddy? Hey, hey, Trevor. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a fan of the show. And it's uh, you know, very exciting to be uh, in a mining uh, podcast uh, for once instead of a uh, <laughs> you know, macro-themed or uh, general podcast. Uh, so be be gentle on me because I be gentle on me because I don't I don't really know that much. So <laughs> okay, well I I don't think I don't think we can shy much away from the macro. I mean we're going to try to combine as much of this as we can because that kind of has been the general theme of this year. I would say is the macro driving the metals prices and then obviously unfortunately a lot of the equity prices within the metals. Um, you know we got a number of bullet bullet items here that you and I need to cover. Uh, but first, I, I will say I've been a fan of yours, obviously. You put out some great content on Twitter, and I'm a little bit bashful to say that this is the first time you've been on the podcast, so I apologize about that. But since this is the first time, we have to get some introductions out of the way here, Shrub. Uh, 
you say you're the founder and CIO of a trillion dollar hedge fund. Uh, no, so not a hedge fund. It's a hedge fund. A hedge fund. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> so so exactly. you, at least you have a smile on your face. This isn't you're not panicky. <laughs> break this down Zero for panic. us. Yeah, yeah. Break break this Zero down for panic. us. Exactly. So um before I became a uh, Twitter uh, Twitter uh, personality, <laughs> I was uh, which I, I I was in the hedge fund industry for close to fifteen years. I started off as a banker, actually. Then I worked for uh, one of the biggest hedge funds uh, that were involved with the subprime uh, short, to the big short. Um, then I was a portfolio manager and a special. Special sits fund, and now I run a family office uh, out of Monaco. Um, that, that that's the two second summary. I worked as a you know my core uh, strategy was always being a generalist and doing uh, event driven investing. Um, but I did pick up mining and financials out of you know. Out of all sectors, I picked the two most cyclical sectors to uh, to work on a lot. Uh, you know, in two thousand six onwards, so I went to the GFC for with both uh, uh, with both sectors, and uh, you know, I kept I kept investing in them ever since. Um, I have to admit that I became, a, you know, I become an occasional tourist in the in these sectors uh, as much as I love them. I don't love financials at all ever, <laughs> but you know, mining is like a special, special place ever since, uh, cause you know, my, my dad, uh, he actually worked on a copper mine once. So he took me, he, he used to take me as a kid to the, to the copper mine. And I would see like the giant, uh, caterpillar trucks. It was like really exciting being a, you know, being a kid in all in, in that environment. So, so that's, that's kind of special. Um, so yeah, so the mining sector, I was a tourist in the good times and the bad times, uh, the 2006 China boom, then the China collapse, then the, you know, mini bounce, uh, you know, now the, and now the EV revolution or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, here we are, um, you know, regarding the macro, well, I, I, I say two things about macro, um, because both mining and financials, if you don't have a macro view, the micro isn't going to save you. So, you know, the, exp- the, the axiom is if you don't do macro, the macro will, will do you. <laughs> so you need a macro view before you go in. And then I have a second axiom where I say never go full macro. <laughs> so because if you go full macro, you actually can miss very good opportunities that you think is, you know, a 10 bagger, but you might be bearish that specific thing. So, you know, you have to combine the two to some degree. And I think that's where a lot of people uh, make mistakes um, in this space and in most spaces. Mm. Uh, so you jumped into the mining sector and you said you, you mentioned two sectors mining was one of them were you was oil and gas the other one no That's financials just, oh financials banks. okay yeah banks okay. Oh, banks okay um, but you know I've, I've done i've done pretty much every I, i've i've lost money on every sector out there and every asset class so <laughs> Less, lessons from it yeah right across yeah well, that, it's interesting because so two thousand and six, you you mentioned mining on the China commodity boom. 
it was 2006 was kind of getting near kind of the height of that boom, wasn't it? Was it well, a little look, late to jump in? Well, I started in 2006. Um, so I was an event-driven guy. And the reason why I was jumping in is because that's when the, and you're right, a few things were happening at that point. The, the big companies, so Anglo, Rio, BHP, and uh, Extrata at the time, um, that's when the M&A cycle started. So as an event-driven guy, I was drawn to it because uh, at the time Rio bid for Alcan, and then it was a bidding war for uh, um, the nickel projects in Canada. I can't remember, but what was it called? Um, Fording. Fording. Um, so basically, as, as an event-driven guy, you wanted, we were out and, you know, arbing all these deals and playing for counters and all that stuff. And then, and then BHP made the move for Rio because Rio, by that point, was quite weakened by their really crappy Alcan acquisition. Um, so those, those profits that they were making actually s- created the M&A cycle. 2006, 2007, and it was a very exciting time to be a mining investor. I remember, like, uh, Anglo was the perennial takeover target. You know, I noticed that today it hit a 52-week low, for example. But, you know, Anglo was always in play, and, uh, you know, Extrata ended up being taken over by Glencore anyway. Um, And a few other things, exciting things happened, like Iron Ore was a contract... uh, commodity and then it moved to spot around uh, 2007-8 if I recall correctly so yeah it was it was it was basically people waking up to you know M&A happens towards the end of the cycle in some way and at that point it was like we were towards the mature side of the cycle and that's when the M&A happened and that's where we got involved and of course afterwards um, well in 2008 we were also short short all the banks so that kind of made all the money anyway, but it kind of helped us uh, with, with, you know, with the rest. Um, you know, and coming out in 2009, we obviously had, you know, the global recovery um, where you, you know, you should have been long miners to make the real money. And I mean, the, you know, a, a couple of things on the post GFC setup. Um, the the biggest mistake I tell myself that I did after the GFC was that I bought a lot of physical gold and I should have bought a lot of copper instead. Because, you know, at the lows, I was concerned about the solvency of the system. So, you know, obviously you gravitate towards gold, uh, which was great and it worked. But then when the recovery happened, you know, I, I sold my gold at like, you know, say 1600 actually 1550 I remember. I bought it at 950 and I sold it at 1550 But I didn't have the knowledge to shift to a long copper position until, you know, a few months off the lows pretty much. You know, it took a few months to see that recovery um, really build up. So, you know, fast forwarding COVID, you know, the lessons that we got 
and didn't make money on in 2009, we used those lessons to, to actually implement in COVID because it was pretty much the same setup. Um, but look, in 2009 was quite interesting because we were, we were bailed out by the Chinese fiscal stimulus. So that's why it was a commodity-driven um, rally. But, you know, I remember because it's a relevant part of the current setup. So I'll tell you one story that, you know, I remember going to China in 2009 um, and I went to these ghost cities. And the other guy who went at the same time was, I think, Hugh Henry did the same trip. It's like he went there and he had these videos of himself in the ghost cities. And once you, once you see the ghost cities, you, you, know, you become bearish while the actual data is bullish. So it's a bit of what your eyes are telling you is something else than what science or data science tells you. Like I, would, I remember I would go to this city that people didn't know exist. Like I told a friend of mine in Beijing, I'm going to this city. And the guy said, well, I've never heard of this city. And it's like, but dude, there's 10 million people live there. That doesn't matter. There's a lot of those cities. And then you go there and uh, it was a city called Naning, not Nanjing, Naning. And it had, you know, it looked like Canary Wharf uh, in the middle of nowhere with no people. The airport was an hour away from the center of the town. And I remember asking the taxi driver, why is, it, why is the airport one hour away from the center? And he said, oh, because the city is going to grow to reach the airport. And then you go around and you just see like the farmers around the city, but the city itself was empty in, in a, to, a, to a big extent. So, you know, you see that and you come out and you're bearish. And then I went to visit some aluminum smelters. And, you know, you could tell that these guys were just producing to keep employment in reality because the demand wasn't there at the time. But so what my eyes were seeing was bearish, but then the fiscal stimulus and the data was bullish. So by the time you married the two, you know, the, the Glencore guys just picked it up straight away where some uneducated person like me took me a while to figure that out. Let's okay, I, I want to take this opportunity here um because obviously the topic of china is <laughs> meaningful right now uh giving the the i think, the, I think the it's geos- the key topic i think it's the key it, topic it, it, so let's expand on this a little bit shrub i i you know i saw the same video everybody else did of uh xi jinping sitting there while his predecessor was escorted out of the room last week and I got to tell you, just watching this from afar, it was one of the most frightening things I think I had seen in quite some time. And perhaps we will look back at that moment as we're going to talk about pivots here quite a bit, but that might be one of the most symbol, biggest symbols of a Chinese pivot I have seen in, well, in, in my lifetime. Uh, it was downright terrifying. I mean, you watching that and having your knowledge of investing and watching the Chinese economy, what did that moment mean to you? I was very scared as well because, um, first of all, we have the precedent. Sorry, one thing I'm really against is this president for life thing. Mm-hmm. 
Like, what is president for life? It means, dude, just replace it and call yourself dictator or, uh, you know, autocrat or emperor. Instead, you call yourself emperor, for, you know, president for life to disguise what you really are. And then what the guy did that day, I found it as well very scary because we have the precedent of Putin invading Ukraine very recently. And suddenly you have a guy that solidifies his power, not in a covert way, <laughs> but in a very explicit way. He's telling you, I'm the boss and I don't care who this guy next to me is. I don't care he's 80 years old or that he was the ex-premier. Uh, Just going to get rid of him because he spoke against me. And I'm going to do it in front of you so you see what happens. And I'm going to do it more, benevolent, more benevolently than my hero Mao and Stalin who would have killed him. I'm just going to escort him out. But I'm going to make sure that you see it so you know what happens. That, that's how I interpreted it. Now, what happened afterwards is if you see the composition of the board. So, so th th that's my, th that was my conclusion, and it, it felt a bit far-fetched at the time. But then he announced the composition of the board, and you notice a few things that, you know, the guys who were appointed, first of all, there's no women, mm. right? There's no women. I think the first time in a very long time, which, by the way, China is a very uh, moderate society when it comes to gender issues. You know, they have very strong women. And even Mao's, uh, um, I can't remember what Mao's core team was, you know, it had a woman there. So this, this time, there's no women. Obviously, there's no minorities because, well, there's no minorities in China. Uh, but let's, let's not get into that. Um, so basically, the guy had a very, very... Um, and, and, and the people that he appointed were from a... Uh, defense, security, military, industrial background. So you see the composition, you're like, well, this is like a war cabinet. <laughs> right. And the way he manages to solidify his power is actually by the promise of uh, the one China, of unifying Taiwan. So I'm of the view personally, and again, like... No one knows this, so I'm just making the caveat that I don't know anything about it and no one knows about it except him. I'm of the view that he's going to take action on Taiwan, you know, within the next, you know, two to three years. And actually, I lean towards the less than two years uh, scenario. And I'm not being a conspiracy theorist because that's kind of what his manifesto was for the last to become president for life. Because this is like a 1984 scenario. You know, these guys, they studied propaganda. Like, you know, they come out of the Communist Party, both him and Putin. What is a, the Communist Party? They teach you propaganda and they teach you um, basically, you know, mind control to a way. And how do you do that? Well, Orwellian 1984 scenario, you create a war and then you make people scared. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's, it's been happening, you know, for a long time. <laughs> so. Yeah. You know, Shrub, it, it, it wasn't really long ago. Historically speaking, there, there was a time where Western countries, if you were, if, if you were, a, a Western business or company, you would not ever do business with Russia. 
In fact, you probably wouldn't even do business with 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 the Chinese. Um, that changed, you know, with the with you know with Nixon finally visiting China uh, back in the day, and we could see we could see that dynamic obviously changing for six seven decades. Now we know we Western companies are not doing business with Russia. Uh, because of the U- Ukraine war and the sanctions placed against them, that's that dynamic is obviously changing day every day and has been all year. But what about the dynamic with the Chinese? Is there continued pressure for corporations to remove their interests out of China? How fast is that growing? And on top of that, what about these supply chains that we have continually relied on from China? for raw materials, finished raw materials, refined raw materials. And how does that play into a, I know this is a big question, but how does that (laughs) play into a CapEx boom that we potentially could be seeing in Western countries move forward, knowing that our infrastructure just hasn't been up to standards or, or even to par because of our reliance on Chinese finished goods? Okay. So let's start with the first one. So the reason why Western corporations and even investors, like my, my first boss, uh, who was extremely successful, he had one, he had very few um, no-go investments. So, and one of them was Russia is a no-go. And this was because in 1998, he almost... You know, he almost blew up because of Russia. And, uh, you know, he remembers the expropriations and things that happened afterwards. Uh, you know, it was a, the Russian crisis. Um, and pretty much every investor lost money in Russia. So Russia became like a no-touch uh, jurisdiction. And to be honest, to me, from that perspective, Russia was always a no-touch jurisdiction. Um, the reason is very simple. You know, there's no rule of law. There's no property rights. Um, and, uh, you know, most of them, okay, I'll, I'll say it out loudly, but, you know, they're thieves. I mean, they stole their people's assets. So the 0.1%, 0.001% stole their people's assets um, and act like uh, mini uh, uh, rulers. I mean, the oligarchs, well, they act like, uh, oligarchs uh, uh, with little kingdoms. So why would you want to invest in a country like that? You don't. Now go to China. So that is very clear. And it's actually a pretty small market. Uh, it's not a rich country, as you know. I mean, I've been to China a few times. Yeah, sorry, I've been to Russia a few times. You know, it's not a rich country. So you have you know, a few McDonald's and a few corporations. But in reality... You know, shutting down Western interests in Russia doesn't really hurt anyone. If, if you've seen now what happened, you know, some corporations lost a couple of percent. No big deal. Okay, go to China. So China, obviously, you know, China coming into the WTO was probably one of the most deflationary things that ever happened in the history of the world. Because suddenly, you had... A billion people coming into 
the workforce as cheap labor in effect to bring you know to export cheap cheap goods into the western world but also to buy products by you know by once they become rich by our products right so the wto membership was a very deflationary effect you're you know you're increasing your market by a billion people great including labor now come today and suddenly you know we've reversed all these things so obviously we have the wto but there's no trust anywhere so that's a very inflationary thing to start with you know it started with the trump tariffs it started with this mistrust uh the ukraine situation made it worse because obviously chi said that he's uh, friends for life with his buddy putin so you know all these things are creating uh these obstacles uh that make china more introvert in some way if that's the right word um so where but the difference with the current scenario and russia is you know the western corporations in russia it's only a few percent in china you have real dependency of western corporations tesla you know the shanghai plant was one of their big growth engines the auto industry volkswagen bmw you know big presence and let's not forget two data points very important points let's not forget that the chinese forced these companies since 2000s they forced them with technology transfer mm-hmm. so they forced them with technology transfer where they had to share their technology to enter the market with local partners and also they were forcing them to have jvs so bmw wouldn't operate as bmw they would have a jv with brilliance whatever it was i don't know tesla how they're structured there but you know it, it's been a very common way to do business in china and this is obviously very much against the western interests so i remember when alstom moved there for high speed trains and they had to share technology it's like well yeah great because it's a it's a it's a big market and if we give them the technology well they're only going to be it's going to take them 20 years to build trains as good as ours well kind of now they do <laughs> right? Right, right so so we've lost we've given china competitive advantages we've shared them with them our competitive advantages that's the first thing the second thing is we share these competitive advantages for what who actually got money out of china and that's i'm leaving that as an open question and if you find someone to answer that question to me please let me know <laughs> because last time i did this work and i looked at it it's been years since i che- last checked i couldn't find a company that actually made a lot of money in china and got the money out i'm leaving it as an open question to your listeners someone find me a case where someone made a lot of money in china and took it out because i don't i can't think of any like you can have the scenario of you know apple selling phones in china sure but it anyone actually take money out <laughs> so you're saying say kept in their chinese it you you think that that money made in from the chinese consumer has been kept in in chinese bank in the chinese yeah, financial did, system did, did any okay. chinese subsidiary make a special dividend to their western subsidiary i don't know interesting so interesting. that's what i mean so the two things to take away from this is one is 
we were giving we were giving away technology to get access to the market and two we got access to the market but did we actually get any money out of the market okay so this is the negative setup and i think this this leaves what i the reason why i'm bringing this up is not out of bitterness is because it leaves the western companies quite vulnerable oh yes because in the next step, if we have a, say we have a Taiwan invasion, what's going to happen to Tesla's uh, Shanghai factory, you think? You think Elon is going to keep it? It's going to have a new logo the next day. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that's, that's why this is a very negative, because it's not a 1-2% business. It's probably like, you know, a third or something for some of them. I, so I mean, do, you, do you even think, sorry to interrupt, but do you think even there'd be a time soon where the, the government of the United States would, tell Elon Musk that you are not allowed to do any business in China. You can't even sell your vehicles to Chinese. And if you do, there are going to be serious consequences. Look, I mean, Elon is a, has become a very powerful man lately, right? So he has the satellites. He has Twitter now. He has a free voice, right? A very important voice. And he has a, you know, very high-end technology. So they might tell him, oh, and he tweeted publicly in favor of the Russians in a very strange way. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. but so, okay, l let me, let me give you along this way. So we don't, so I don't speculate about Elon specifically because we can, right. I, 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 I want to speculate about Elon about something else later. But and we use Elon, we, we use Elon in like this general sense, just cause I he's know, like the easiest one to, he's like the I know, I know, right right exactly. But <laughs> I'm going to just give one simple example. There was a, there was an, there was a U.S. order, uh, whereby it said that employees of semiconductor companies were not allowed to do business in China. I don't know if you saw that. So they basically said, if you worked at a chip manufacturer and you're American, you're not allowed to work for a Chinese company. I mean, that's pretty big in a way because you're, you're kind of saying you're not allowed to share technology. So it goes back to, which by the way, well done to the US in the sense that, you know, not being like the idiot Europeans, we're not going to share our technology. Not only will we not share our technology, we will not let even our employees go and work for you, just in case. So, you know, it's, it, it's like another level in the Cold War. But it, it is a Cold War. It's a I Cold had, War. I, this is a Cold I War. Would love, I would love to see any sort of like online data about the mention, like the phrase Cold War. I feel like that phrase has escalated uh, exponentially in just the last couple weeks it'd be quite yeah. honest with you shrub because yeah. now every time i hear cold war which i feel is more frequent now than it even was six months ago it just if 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 that frequency continues to rise doesn't that just prove that we're currently in it it's like the recession the more we talk about a recession whether we're in or out of a recession basically means that it's solidified we're in a recession same thing with the cold war of course, of course. And you escalate because, again, 1984, give the people, uh, you know, that fear element. Because <laughs> if you put it in the news, it just escalates and it becomes an issue. For example, this thing with the semiconductor employees, you know, it's a new level in the Cold War in some way. But right. going back to your point about, because I left one, one part of your question unanswered, which is a very, very important part. And it's about the reshoring. Yes. Okay, so let's let's say there is let's let's say 
What's the pro- let, let, let's just go quickly Russia Ukraine. What was the issue with Russia Ukraine for the rest of the world, apart from being a humanitarian uh, disaster? The issue was energy, mm-hmm. because you know China uh, Russia is X percent of you know ten percent of uh, global oil production, and you know forty percent of the stupid German uh, uh, gas uh, imports because the Germans you know. The Germans, we say, oh, these stupid Germans, you know, they're taking 40% of their economies powered by Russian gas. How stupid? It's like, no, man, it's not stupid. Someone got money to do this. Don't assume it's stupid. Someone got money. Schroeder, their ex, ex-president, prime minister, whatever, chancellor, the guy was on the, like, he's on the board of, uh, he's a chairman of, like, uh, Nord Stream. <laughs> he's getting money from Gazprom. So it's like, oh, these stupid Germans. Man, the Germans are not stupid. They're a very, very advanced nation, smart, well-educated. It's not a stupid decision. People got money for the Germans to be in this situation. But, but I digress because I want to focus on the investment side of things. Uh, the investment side of it says this. So the, the, the Ukraine war led to an energy crisis because Russia was 10% of oil production and also separately, you know, fertilizers were impacted. So the soft commodities were impacted because of the Belarus-Russia uh, high market share in potash and also in the wheat, Ukraine-Russia uh, high market share in uh, wheat exports. Okay, so that's that. So let's say what's going to happen if uh, China invades Taiwan? Well, we're not going to have an energy crisis. But the percentage of processing of, me- of metals that China has is insane. So copper, 40%, lithium, uh, sorry, processing. So copper, 40%, nickel, 40%, cobalt, 70%, lithium, 60%, rare earths, 90%, or whatever it is. So, so basically... Any disruption from Taiwan is going to create an energy type, could create an energy type disruption in the metals market. From the Similar similar to what we saw with Russian energy. Correct. And that's without even taking into account the chip situation, whereby the world's most advanced chips are made in Taiwan. So say something happens and, uh, you know, the 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 US decides to blow up the 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 semiconductor plants of TSM well i mean it, it it sounds ridiculous but that could send it could send us back 5 years or something in terms of <laughs> technological no, advance advance i think I, I think that's pretty optimistic actually yeah that, sure. it's actually years. 10 years but I, I just I just didn't want to scare the kids listening to the show. But it could be like <laughs> it could be like ten years back plus a metals crisis. And the worst part is because it's a cold war this time. The cold war, you know, in the eighties it was Russia, U.S., and a few you know peripheral nations. But this time it's going to be Russia, China <laughs> versus U.S. And unfortunately, yeah. I don't understand how the South is going involved in this as well. But the Saudis are in this too now, which is to make things worse. <laughs> right. So this kind of follows in line in 
and everybody knows, and I've mentioned this on the podcast, I wrote about it on the Substack regarding Russell Napier's interview regarding a CapEx boom, uh, increasing nominal GDP while inflating the debt away. But in that discussion, we didn't talk about the timeliness of or the expediting this CapEx boom for raw materials based on potential or or a cold global cold war uh or even just a, an actual war on the back of an invasion of taiwan by the chinese i mean you would expect that the U, us administrations are seeing this and need to move expeditiously to solve this problem but it doesn't like you know from us observers on the outside looking in it doesn't seem like that's going to happen but you know how does this the, the, i guess do you do you how do you see this capex boom do you think it's a real thing in the future will it focus on a natural resources type of capex boom um and will it be kind of lit a fire behind it because of a more on the department of De defense intervention saying we need these materials we can't get it from where we've been getting it from aka china yeah look the the, obvi the obvious answer is they both the us and europe they realize that they made a big mistake europe just says we will do this we will do that but actually no they're not really doing anything so i'm i'm starting with the easy ones so the uk which is the most switched on and serious european country they said we're going to you know, bizarrely, by the way, um, they said, well, we're going to do more drilling in the North Sea. And then what did they do? Windfall tax for North Sea producers. So the guys that were going to save you, you're just going to do a windfall tax for them. Yeah, great. Good job, guys. Then you look at the European side. They say, oh, we need to do onshoring and make, uh, you know, produce our own lithium because they, I think Germany imports 99% of its lithium or something if not 100%. Mm. I think it's 100%. So did you see any lithium projects uh, approved in Germany? Because the only one I heard of was the one in Serbia, and that was blocked. So there was only one lithium project, the big one. Was it the Rio Tinto one, right? Uh, I think it was Rio Tinto. I, 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 anyway, I think, I think that was blocked as well. So basically, these guys, they, they want the... What's the expression you use? The pie and to eat it too. They want to keep the pie and eat it too, right. which is basically exactly what uh, you know our common friend Koala's uh, eucalyptus paradox is referring to, which the eucalyptus mm -hmm. paradox, which is a you know a great concept by a great friend, basically says um, you know every everyone wants the metals, but they refuse to mine them. <laughs> so, in right. summary, right? So, right. so it, it's like not in my backyard kind of situation. Um, and by the way, that's something to, to talk about later, but a global recession, which looks like it's happening or a global slowdown, will actually reinforce this paradox because prices are going to stay soft for the next couple of years and then no one's going to build anything <laughs> because I think that's what's going to happen. And, but let's expand on this point later because it's an important point. So let me, let, me, let me just get back on this. What are the governments doing? So 
how did we get into this uh, energy situation to start with? Let, let me just give you a few numbers. So in 2000, the energy capex was 70 billion, okay, for, for the U.S. So the U.S. was spending 70 billion energy capex. Then you had the shale boom, and that grew to 250 billion from 2008 uh, until 2016, say, so for eight years. Then it went down to 150 billion. And now the capex is 99 billion. So you basically slashed your capex from the highs by one third. So the missing capex is, I don't know, call it like a trillion or something. Mm -hmm. And that's the US, which has its own domestic production. Forget about the Europeans. I mean, the Europeans took the decision that it's better to burn coal than do anything else about, the, about this. So the sector I'm the most bullish, uh, and I still am, I mean, I've been the most bullish about the last few months and still I'm bullish, is the oil services sector. Because we can see this paradox um, whereby, you know, the, produce, the oil price might stay at $80, $90, or $70. But they, these guys should be incentivized to produce more. And actually, Biden said it's your national responsibility to produce more. So they've underinvested in the oil services space, and now they need to invest again and get the oil flowing. So we hope that the U.S. government gives their blessing for it or, or it helps them. But even if they don't, you know, the, the prices are good enough for the capex to increase in places like uh, the U.S., um, the U.S. And, and offshore as well, and the oil services looks like a perfect capital cycle in the sense there was so much destruction, or uh, you know, so many rigs got cold stacked, like you know, put basically in the closet, uh, and so many crews left the industry to work in construction or retire. But basically, there's a big gap of productive units to make up for, for this demand. That's why mm. the oil services companies, you look at their results and you're like, oh, my God. You know, because I know that everyone looks at Meta and Google and the Amazon results. Dude, look at, look at uh, some of these oil services stocks. I was looking at a company called Neighbors, uh, MBR. You know, it's a billion-dollar company. And they were going to make 400 million free cash flow next year. And they locked contracts for four years. So, you know, it, it, the old services looks like a very exciting space. And if we're going to solve the energy crisis, it's going to be through the oil services stocks. Now, the energy producers are probably going to have a good time as well. But they run the risk of windfall taxes because we're unfortunately in a situation where, you know, these companies are going to look like piggy banks for, for governments. So, so this is the energy side. The energy side is a bit easier because the U.S. is a, is a dominant producer. It's already there. You guys know how to do it. Um, Canada as well. So fine, easy for the U.S. and Canada. For Europe, it's not easy. For Europe, they're kind of going to be dependent. Europe, Europe basically is going to become like a U.S. Uh, province if they don't do something about their energy because right now they're not investing anything still. Um, right. we hope they get some nuclear done, whatever. Anyway, so on the mining side, there's a real problem. 
because mining, um, just gonna get some, you know, you see the extractive side of mining, copper. There's no projects. There's a few projects, but you know, it's Chile, nickel, Indonesia, cobalt, DRC, rare earth, China, lithium, Australia, maybe a bit of Canada starting, Chile. So the, the supply chains on the, on the commodity side are still very global. And they're complex from the ex because there's the extraction side. And as we said earlier, it's the processing side as well. So you can get yep. screwed on the processing side. You could get your extraction right, but get screwed on your processing side. And by the way, processing is like, it's something that Europe could, you know, they could have processing. But of course they're not because it's a bit dirty. So let's just give that to China, right? So it's not a question of a competitive advantage. The competitive advantage is that China likes to burn coal and we don't. That's the only competitive advantage that they have. So we're in a very sensitive situation where the supply chains could break down quite easily. And because of the long lead time of projects, you would have expected people to wake up today and get things done. So, you know, I like to use these things, uh, uh, you know, these numbers to, uh, as a reminder, a copper mine takes 10 years to build and an offshore oil project takes five to 10 years at best, but you know, some of them take 15 years. So, mm -hmm. and how you see, and the problem is if we have a political cycle that's four years, Everyone just goes like, yeah, 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 blah, 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 we'll do it, we'll do it, and they just leave it to the other guy. But no one does it. Yeah. So this is, this is the problem we have. And if you put all that together, what does it translate to? Actually translates to higher prices in the long term. Well, and, and, and you know as well as everybody else who probably is listening, maybe this is just a friendly reminder. Let's just say there's move to expedite or improve, let's say improve, not expedite, improve the permitting process in North America in general, U.S. specific. So let's say the permitting process improves and you give the green light for, let's say, a base metal mine, copper mine, whatever, to start production, begin mining in this time frame. There's that. It produces a concentrate, but then needs to be shipped to some sort of refiner processor for the finish, finish good. And if it's anything like what we're seeing in the oil industry here, Shrub, with refiners running at absolute full capacity with zero room for error, we don't even have enough smelters in North America to reach demand, let alone reach the capacity of smelting to refine products to meet that demand. And so it's not enough to permit a mine quickly and improve that process. It has to, you have to create the infrastructure for smelting, uh, smelting infrastructures in a place where it can also be transported easily to where it needs Absolutely. to go. So West Coast, East Coast, Texas, somewhere along the waterways. Um, you know, how are you thinking about this? And I, and I'm just kind of thinking you are, you've been in London for LME week. And I'm just kind of curious if some of these ideas and questions had come up in your conversation. Absolutely. So look, um, let me start a quick comment on LME week and it's going to give you, uh, 
it's going to give you an idea of how things are and how this, uh, what we call the eucalyptus paradox builds up. So LME week, <laughs> uh, first of all, you know, I caught up with some great guys that I met through Twitter, you know, fantastic meets. Um, the one takeaway is that I remember LME week, you had a lot of specialist funds and they would talk about, you know, you always had an analyst that would have his own favorite, like little junior minor, and that would be the, the next big thing. This time around, you know, big journalist funds, and they just want to talk about Glencore and, you know, a few of the big ones, because, you know, unfortunately, the, the, how, how, how the market structure is today versus how it used to be, the specialist funds are gone. Um, mm. There's no long-term money in this space, really. And, uh, you know, the guy who buys invest in mining, he's a guy that owns Microsoft and Google, and he's like, ah, oh, I need to put a 5% allocation in mining. Uh, oh, what do I do? I'm going to buy Glencore. I mean, Glencore, great company, sure. But he's not going to go and find the project that needs the financing to create, you know, he's not going to go out and finance Philo you know, or the next big project. He's going to wait for someone else to do it. So, that, so what I want to clarify is that basically investors are short-term and they became even more short-term, monthly, quarterly. So this is like, you see where the flows, I, I look a lot at flows and the flows are in passive strategies, but also pot shops, which are basically the millennium 0.72s of the world, which are great shops but they have a very short-term view. They're not the guys who are going to finance the next CapEx boom that Russell is talking about. So that's why my view, and I, I sent a, my view is that at some point, two things should, should be happening. The first thing that should be happening is that policymakers should be stepping in and give incentives or grants. The second thing that could happen is that I think the industry could step in and finance these projects. And I'll give you an example. So uh, I, I don't know if you know, but I, I tweeted back in October that I thought that Elon Musk was going to buy Twitter because he believes in uh, free speech. And he knows that we're not going to get in. He, I, I, I said he will buy Twitter because he knows without free speech, we will not be able to go to Mars. Okay, so that was a joke, but it turned out to be true. So he bid for Twitter and now he's bought it as of tomorrow. <laughs> so, so the other tweet I said is, I tweeted out and said, Elon at some point will buy lithium, a lithium mine. And then he said a few days later or a few weeks later, he said, yeah, we are open to stakes or you know, look to partner on the lithium mines. So jokes aside, if I was Elon which is the most entrepreneurial out of all the automakers because he runs the show himself. The other guys would probably do it, but the guy who runs the supply chain at BMW or uh, Volkswagen is probably like a bureaucrat, makes a nice salary, but is not going to have the balls to go to his CEO and said, we need to go and buy a lithium mine. But Elon is going to see it. Mm. So Elon is going to go and see and is going to think about it. Someone is going to send him a deck or, or the Koala's uh, substack on lithium and it's going to be like, holy shit. <laughs> It's like a pretty big bottleneck in lithium. What should I do? Oh, I know. I'm going to find a project and I'm going to give them an off-take agreement with some fixed price or I'm going to buy a stake. You know, I'll, I'll get an equity stake. Well, you know, 
screw it, I'll just buy the whole thing because I can, because I'm worth 300 billion. And that way, you basically, you gain a core advantage as Tesla versus your competition because the German guy is going to be asleep by the time you, you make all these agreements. I'm just using as an example. So what we're trying to say here yeah. is there's a big problem. The problem is that there's no incentive, there's no money for new projects because they're risky and because the market structure in the equity market is not there. So how do you solve it? Is one, it's going to be policymakers or two, industry should step up. And the only people in industry that have a vision are very few. There's very few people that have that vision. I guess the, my curiosity and follow-up question for that was, you know, I guess first a statement, I, you know, I, maybe Elon can do or, or the likes of Elon. Again, it's too easy to pin him. I feel like point. I know him by now. But the likes of Elon, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so the likes of Elon can do that because he has that entrepreneurial spirit in him, willing to take risks where the bureaucrat from the likes of a major car manufacturer like BMW won't because they just cannot take on such risks. And But what is the bigger risk here for a corporation that depends on these raw materials for the future of their company? Is it taking on said risks in a mining company, seeing such in an industry that has seen such tremendous failure over the generation or is it the risk not doing anything and having to deal with supply chain issues out of your control look that's that's why not that's why the bureaucrat in germany will not be able to do this decision because it's a risk and you know there's ways to mitigate the risk is that you go and find 10 mines or you find uh, uh you know albermal or whatever and you just, you know, someone who's a proven operator, you don't go to a junior miner, maybe you go to a more proved, proven operator, and you just say, I'll give you an off-take, or, you know, I'll give you equity financing, or, you know, give me some warrants or something. Or, you know, just spread over 10, uh, 10 mines. But, you know, th this is where the government should be doing a bit of hand-holding as well at the same time um, to incentivize this. And, you know, th this, this isn't happening in Europe. But the U.S., I think this um, the Inflation Reduction Act or whatever they called it does have some elements of grants, and there's like 300 billion there for projects that should have been uh, mentioning uh, mining more explicitly. But you know, there are there are there are critical materials there. So I'm I'm more optimistic about the U.S. because the U.S. Um, has the infrastructure in the political level, has deep infrastructure to actually uh, take action. Whereas I think the Europeans, unfortunately, were, were a bit of a lost cause. And I, I mentioned this uh, lithium project in Serbia, and I found that it's like, it's the government annulled all permits because of the, because there was a, a general election in a few weeks and there was a massive protest against the lithium mine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just for the election, they just killed it. For the clean air and the waters, they said. So, you know, great. I mean, I, I'm gonna, you know, and it was like a $3 billion project, the Jadar. So, you know, if, if no one wants to 
build a lithium project. Well, skip the EV dream and just you know go back to fossil fuel driven uh, power uh, cars. <laughs> so. um, we've got a couple minutes here left, Shrub, and there, there's one thing I really wanted to get some comments from you, and I can't take I, I will not take credit for this uh, because. I, I, there's no point, but I was listening to another podcast yesterday while I was doing some yard work, actually. And, uh, James Aiken was the guest of this podcast. And he had this incredible quote that just threw me back. And it's in the, this context. And we're going to turn to the macro a little bit quick regarding, a Fed pivot on interest rates, and it, you know, as the general market seems to express that this pivot is coming, this the Fed's going to pivot. It, they've they've tightened too hard, too fast. It, it's got to slow down. And James Aiken said, "It's not the Fed that needs to pivot; it's the investors that need to pivot." And I'm also watching this as I see Meta down 25% at the market open this morning. And everybody continues to watch the technology stocks. The headlines continue to be Meta. What's Tesla doing? Kathy Wood. Everything that benefited from this ZERP uh, uh, financial system we've had for 10 years. Is it, is it, should it be the case that the investors need to pivot and start looking at value, start looking at resources, and start thinking long-term instead of what you said, weeks, months, quarters, returns. Look, I I think the guy hits uh, the nail on the head. Um, You know, I did my pivot last year or just after COVID, and I was at my first podcast, you know, saying, saying about this value to growth rotation, because at the time it was, you had one time, you had two, three times EBITDA stocks on the value side, on the commodity side, and then you had 50 times sales on the tech side. Mm-hmm. But what I noticed was my, my people, <laughs> the value guys, they would be scared to even own their stocks at two times EBITDA because you know you don't want to own you don't want to own cyclicals at low low multiples. That's what that's what we were taught, right? You got to sell cyclicals at low multiples. But then the tech guys, whenever there was a dip, it was like oh buying opportunity. So the reason why I'm mentioning this example is that we are conditioned after a very long bull market. Us value guys or commodity investors or whatever you want to call us, we were even scared to ride the wave in 2021, 2022, even though our companies were printing money. But on the other side, the QE-brained tech investors, they didn't care that their stocks were 50 times sales because every dip is a dip. You buy the dip. Who cares? I mean, who cares about numbers, man? Trevor. Who cares about numbers, <laughs> right? And suddenly you had, you know, I remember there was like companies that I had never heard of before uh, that were like 20, 30, 40 billion uh, in the tech space. And 
you know, they'd be as big as Rio Tinto, <laughs> so, but didn't make a dollar of profit in their lifetime. So this thing, you know, I, I stuck with my view that we're heading into a stagflationary environment. And in previous instance, instances of stagflation, you know, I had a research report. I went through this uh, many times in the past. In the 70s, which was the last stagflationary period, the thing that did best was energy on the long side and then tech on the short side. So I took that view in 2021. This is, what's, this is the playbook. You got to stick to this playbook. Even though I'm still very convinced that this is, remains the playbook, how the market trades is very different than what I think. Mm -hmm. And you can still see that even this week with oil close to 90 and all these things we said about, um, you know, the energy crisis, yabida, yabida, all the headlines, what was it about? Google, Microsoft, Tesla, Twitter, Elon, Elon again, <laughs> and more Elon. So, you know, the QE brain, QE brain investors, I, we should compare them to frogs in a pot with boiling water because, you know, they're down more than 50%. But they, they're still there because, you know, there's the bottom. Every time is the bottom or every time is the pivot. Now, to, uh, to Aitken's point, what I think, and this is, this is the, the one, one of the most, um, so one of the most scary things, um, let me just get the number out just so we have it. So the pivot. Mm -hmm. So one of the most scary things is that um, in 2001, when, when there was, sorry, sorry let, let me just, give, give me one sec, because mm -hmm. I, I just want to get this number out um, on the dollar and the yield. So basically, this is, this is what investors are thinking on the pivot. This is what a QE brain tech investor is going to think. I wish, and this, I'm, I'm using Kathy Wood now as an example. It's like, the, oh it's like your brain on drugs commercials. The exactly. So it's like, <laughs> your brain on QE. <laughs> and this is the classic, but it is. It is. QE is like, a, it was like a drug for these people, right? Because it makes them not think clearly. It makes them do stupid things like, uh, you know, buy dog-themed uh, uh, crypto coins. So the thing that they think is like, here's how the QE brain thinks. Oh, the Fed is going to pivot, so uh, I, should I should load up on everything that worked before for me, because this time is going to work again. Forget about the fact that you know, inflation is sticky and it's high, and you know, we're doing QE, QT, from, so we went from QE to QT, so now we're doing, so these guys, the QE brain, they think it's still QE, but no, dude, we're in QT. So this is like the anti-QE brain. We're in QT brain. <laughs> so they think, okay, pivot, and, um, and we're going to buy all the tech stuff, and it's going to be great, and it's going to be party like 99 again, and we're going to play that Prince song, and it's going to be great. But actually, 
what if um, the pivot is just a pause at four and a half percent, right? Four and a half percent, which at four and a half percent, you still have to compare the yield, like the FANG stocks, they don't do 4% yield. So you're competing against 4.5% yield. So you need to make, if the US Treasury is yielding 4.5, IG credit should yield 5.5, and high yield should yield 8%, and equity yield should be 10%. And maybe, okay, Fankers is like a great uh, set of stocks, should yield like 7, but no, they're at 4. So there's still downside. If the pivot is a pause on the rate, I think the pivot is going to be that they're going to abandon QT because QT can't work. So that's my view of the pivot. But for them to abandon QT, it's going to take a bit more. You're going to need to see instability in the treasury market, which we saw some Mm -hmm. last week. And I think we saw the first taste of a coordinated intervention last week. Um, Because last week, the, the, the Japanese central bank came and stabilized the yen. Uh, and then the tr- U.S. Treasury said, we didn't coordinate with them. And then the Japanese said, um, yeah, the U.S. Treasury coordinated with us. Mm-hmm. So it was the first taste of a coordinated action. And I think it's not because the equity market was in the toilet. It was because the Treasury market became unstable. So the Fed put is not on the equity market now. The Fed put is on the credit market. And it always was in reality. It's just the equity market follows. But the QE brain tech investor Things that the Fed put is on his Microsoft stock, which it isn't. So going back to the conclusion is the QE brain investor is going to say, oh, yields peaked and the dollar peaked, so I'm going to buy Microsoft. But what about, I'm going to buy Meta. Sorry, let's say, well, I'm going to buy Meta. It's like, yeah, but, you know, the earnings keep going down the toilet. Who cares if the U.S. Treasury is at four and a half or four or three. And the Q brain is going to be like, oh my God, that's impossible. You know, if yields go from four to three, Meta is going to be up. It's like, well, hold on. Let's remember our distant financial history all the way back to 2000. Like, I know it's a very, very long time ago and people don't have the financial data to go and look at what happened in 2000, but luckily you have me, a shrub. (laughs) So, So in 2000, the two-year treasury peaked at 7%. And then it declined to 1.6% over two years. So the dollar was flat during that period. So what happened to the NASDAQ? It was down 80% over two years, while yields were going down from 7 to 1.6. So... The QE brain got destroyed in that period. And I I see a lot of people having the same mentality right now. And I think a lot of people are going to get destroyed because I think this is going to be prolonged in in a way because we need to rein in inflation. But let's put another example of a pivot. Let's say the pivot was like a rate cut, like surprise rate cut again. So 3rd of January, 2001, there was a surprise rate cut by the Fed. And the Nasdaq was up 14%. Two years later, you know, down the toilet. Yeah. So what I'm, what I'm trying to get to across to people is 
um, you know, I, I joke that a pivot is like a box of M&Ms, you know, you, 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 with closed eyes. So you put your hand in the box of M&Ms, in the pack of M&Ms, and you don't know what you're going to get. You know, you can get like a rate pause, a rate cut, a QT pause, or like a lower rate of, you know, a, a, a slower rate of rate hikes. But at the end of the day, it's also about earnings. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the reason why I'm a bit more cynical than the average investor, I think, is because I've seen this in Europe where we had zero, actually we had negative rates for years and zero rates for more than a decade. And the stock market did nothing. So it's a very possible scenario that, you know, the the sectors that people love do nothing to slash go down for the next few years because, you know, their cost structures are bloated. Like, uh, you know, Google added 13,000 uh, employees in a quarter and Meta is building the metaverse and mm-hmm. the guy's spending like, you know, they say, oh, it's 12 times earnings, but actually the guy's spending all his money. The guy's spending more money than a junior miner. <laughs> 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 Faster than a junior miner to build a stupid metaverse that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> And like so, junior minor, may not be economic. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Same thing. Same thing. <laughs> so basically, and then in the meantime, to give the positive spin to this, you know, the world for two years, these industries could be in a changing situation with, uh, you know, their top lines are okay, by the way, because unemployment is still quite low. So you could have a scenario where they're just drifting lower for two years. Uh, but on the other side, you still have the reshoring um, on the commodity side or you have the energy services, uh, you know, staying tight because the stuff that we like has a supply side constraint. So we could have like good long opportunities on the energy services, for example, for the next two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to be clear, I'm kind of bearish on a few commodities for the next two years, but I'm just trying to, you know, give a frame that there, there are long opportunities from now until, you know, from now on. So, you know, because I, I don't like to be, you know, a perma bear for anything. I'm just saying that there's a segment that will suffer, but there's, there will be segments that will benefit. Um, so, for example, you know, short-term, medium-term oil services, great sector, fine. Um, but let's do copper just to, you know, just to give a frame of, uh, of like a mental, uh, uh, mental model in some way. So copper, for example, you know, if China slows down for two years, it's not going to do well, right? So I'm kind of bearish copper for the next couple of years because mm. demand is slowing down and supply is increasing. So you, but, and, I, you and I are fellow copper Karens as... Yeah, there you, there you go. <laughs> but having said that, you know, give it, you know, look out three years and, you know, the deficit could come again. You know, let, let's do this conversation again in three years. We might have a very different view. Um, so, you know, and this is because if, if you and I are bearish, well, the guys that are going to put the money to build the mines are going to be bearish. So no one's going to build any new mines. <laughs> so, so the deficit is going to show in the future. And it's well, a capital. Commodities are a capital cycle play. That's it. Well, at the same time, I mean, as much as I'm somewhat bearish the metal myself, I am extremely bullish on some of those 
junior explorers in the copper space because I think the timing could be incredibly right because if let's say let's do let's do a two year time horizon for copper that means a company has two years to progress a project to enter it into a new bull cycle for copper you can if you see the silver lining you can set yourself up pretty damn well because you know copper's coming back it just isn't going to happen quickly of course exactly right yeah exactly right um uh shrub god this was good good chat you've uh given me and everybody listening just a tremendous amount to think about um we probably could keep going longer but we'll save some of the the next for the next conversation promise uh thanks for your time buddy and thanks for everything you post on twitter and everything you share uh if anybody has follow-up conversations for you What's the best way to get a hold of you? Twitter, I uh, on Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Twitter all the time. I'm a full time uh, Twitter uh, Twitterer, so <laughs> just, just ping me there. <laughs> I right. reply to most people. <laughs> all right, all right. I, I change my name to Shrub and uh, Shrub Sauvage when I'm in a wild mode, uh, or just <laughs> Le Shrub when I'm in a more relaxed mode. So, but just Shrub, you're gonna find me there. <laughs> all right, very good. Shrub, have a great weekend, my friend. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks, Trevor. Enjoy this. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome back to Mining Stock Daily with me, Paul Harris. Today we're talking about the G in ESG, governance aspects of companies. And uh, for this, I'm joined by Sean Feiler of Equinox Partner, Chief Investment Officer of Equinox Partners. Uh, Good morning, Sean. Morning, Paul. How are you? I am very well, thank you. How are you today? Doing well. Now, um, Equinox Partners, yourself and Equinox Partners have made uh, some, some comments uh, over the last few months um, about certain things that you're, you, you don't like in, in the board of directors, the way companies have run, things of that nature. Um, and through, through this conversation, I'd like to dig into various aspects there and uh, you know, look at what your, what, what your thoughts are, what you see as being good, what you see as being, you know, that needs to, to be changed. Um, let's just start off by picking up on one of the things. You sort of made comments about um, uh, Equinox Partners will no longer vote for directors that have uh, been on a board for, for two years. Um, and also specifically with directors that haven't invested at least two years of their director's fees into the stock of the company on whose board they sit. Um, can you sort of talk to me about why, you know, what, what this is about? And also, why you pick the specific numbers, the two-year period, et cetera, that you you did? Yeah, we wanted to um, identify an incredibly low bar where, um, and it's not that the directors have to buy two years of uh, their compensation in stock. It's that they have to have, have owned two years. So through either grants from the company or through their own money. So we're not making that distinction. We're giving them two years to do it. Uh, the basic idea is that this is a, a, a very low bar that we see other industries set a simple policy where directors serving two or three years have to at least own that much stock in the company um, on the board of which they serve. And um, you just can't have a class of directors that comes in and has 
literally no meaningful alignment with the shareholders of the company that they're governing. I think that just creates all sorts of bad outcomes. And it also, I think, misunderstands what the, the role of directors are. They're not this class of priests or technical experts that are supposed to make decisions on behalf of shareholders. They actually have uh, um, an alignment with shareholders uh, where they're going to be behaving in the best interest of the company, but of shareholders in particular. Okay, thank you. And does that sort of thought um, extend to the executive team as well? You know, I, I do see some companies that have as part of their um, conditions of employment, if you like, that within a certain time frame, an executive has to acquire a certain amount of, of stock. But that's far from being common across the board. But it also would seem to be very much uh, in tune with your, your comments about aligning executives with the interests, the best interests of shareholders, investors. There are surprisingly some chairs, executive chairs, and C-suite officers that also have very modest financial alignment with shareholders. Um, I think that tends to be more of a uh, degree. It's it's very infrequent to find somebody in those kind of executive roles that has really no stock ownership, um, and they're usually even if it's inadequate, it's over this very low bound. So uh, there's a couple cases of that, but what we're finding that's really increasingly prevalent is this idea of these non-executive directors that really have no financial alignment. And then we're still, in some cases, articulate their role really as being a representative of all stakeholders, not particularly shareholders, and I think are really confusing what their responsibilities as directors are. So that's where we really see the heart of the problem. Okay. And, and, you know, the, the term activist investor it has been used in, in some instances, and this would seem to be a certain species of investor activism. Uh, how exactly uh, does Equinox Partners plan to sort of manifest, um, you know, back up, back up your words, back up your view, um, you know, positive actions, um, etc.? Yeah, so we're not activists. We are not seeking to come in and change control of um, uh, the way a company's governed. What we see is we see in the kind of overall mix of what uh, investors are prioritizing with respect to ESG and G in particular, there's a, a whole set of priorities and falling by the wayside is really this idea of financial alignment. Uh, and so we see some boards where non-executive directors as on a whole really don't own stock. That's enormously problematic. And those are companies that we really are going to avoid as shareholders. But we see other instances where boards have had more turnover. They have a newer class of directors, many of whom have been very lackadaisical uh, in terms of actually aligning their interests with shareholders. And what we're really doing is trying to encourage uh, those boards and those uh, directors in particular um, to fulfill, I think, what is should be uh, a normal obligation of a director, especially non-executive director, and create some meaningful alignment with the uh, shareholders of the company that they're directing. And so it's encouraged, it's really intended to be uh, an encouragement uh, rather than um, uh, anything else. Okay, I, I suppose what I was really getting at is to what extent is that a, a sort of passive or, or, or 
a passive or an active sort of engagement with companies and presumably with companies you're already investing you say look if this person hasn't got an amber stock that's perhaps an issue you need to address would that cause you to exit a stock or would that cause you to avoid investing in a particular stock and would you vocalize that to a company that's not going to get your investment say look we like your story we like what you're doing but this is something that's preventing us from investing so to the, the last point, yes, we've had a lot of those conversations. We've had a number of those conversations for, for years. And so one of the reasons why we went public with this policy was we found in more often than not, uh, the companies were not as responsive as they should be uh, with respect to creating that lower bound. And there is no reason why they can't be in the case of our oil and gas investments. We find almost all the companies have this lower bound all, already. Um, uh, in their in their own um, guidance for their directors it's something they enforce it's something that all the directors are over the line on and so there's really no reason why mining companies can't hold their directors and are not executive directors in particular to the same standard uh if you look at the gdxj in aggregate uh there's over 100 directors that don't meet this uh lower bound um the percentage of, of directors of the companies that we own that uh, fall short of this are far fewer because we really are making an effort to invest in companies where directors are more aligned. In the case where we'll have directors that aren't over this uh, threshold, we're going to vote against them. Um, and we think other, other shareholders should do so as well. There's not really any good reason why you should have a director that needs their director fees to sustain their standard of living that that's just not i don't think an appropriate way to think about uh the role of serving as a non-executive director in one of these companies thank you sean that, that sort of leads nicely into my next question for you actually in terms of you know directors can and should perhaps do quite a bit of work to help a company achieve its goals and aims but there does seem to be a certain number of directors out there who for want of a better phrase, collect directorships like baseball cards um, and sit on multiple boards of different companies, plus have a full-time job. Um, in, in your view, is there an optimum or a maximum number of directorships that a single person is actually capable of fulfilling in terms of you know, meeting its obligations and their, their obligations and representing the interests of the shareholders? Yes. I mean, so overboarding is a real problem. Um, you know, the idea that you uh, are um, plausibly competent, affable, get along, and are uh, uh, ineffectual uh, but desirable board member from the perspective of the executives, and especially the chair or CEO who often uh, builds the board, uh, and that you want to make a career out of that, you know, after you've retired from uh, a career as an executive in the industry. Um, I think there's some real problems with that. Um, I think there's some really perverse incentives in terms of your a lack of appetite for uh, criticism, a lack of appetite for conflict on the board. If your uh, goal in life after a career uh, as an executive in the industry is to serve on multiple boards, um, I think you, that's going to incentivize you just to behave, to be too docile on these boards and maybe you're not really represent the interest of shareholders. I think one of the best cures for that is to have real meaningful financial alignment uh, with the companies uh, that you're serving as a director for. But also then there's the other, uh, the point that you're making here, which is that there just should be a limit, right? And 
you know, five is too many, right? Three probably is more plausible number. Uh, and then it varies from board to board. It was whether how much actual work the directors are doing. Um, from what I've seen, the directors actually tend to do a fair amount of work. It's not the the process and the procedures uh, where they're falling short. I think it's in terms of their incentives and their appetite to really pipe up and make sure that the companies make the right strategic uh, decisions that are in the, the the best interest of shareholders. Thank you. There does seem to be, obviously mining attracts some very strong personalities, often in the sort of CEO role. And it does seem to be also some degree of, you know, boards are filled with people that perhaps don't want to disagree with the CEO. Maybe they've been put there by the CEO, as you mentioned. And it seems they perhaps often sort of rubber stamp what the CEO wants to do rather than actively sort of, sort of challenging. I don't mean challenging as just being negative to everything that comes to the board, but, uh, you know, the board has to push back to make sure that um, the, 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 the proposal being suggested by the executive team is, is, is sound. There needs to be that sort of pushback, questioning the decision making. Yeah, hundred percent. That's exactly right. So the uh, you know a board that is independent is not independent of the shareholders. The board that's independent is independent of the executive team, right? And if you lack that independence, and the um, the board is effectively recruited and appointed by the management team, independent of the interests of the shareholders, and they're there because they're there to go along and get along and because they're interested in assembling a series of directorships so they can make a living in uh, their retirement or at the end of their career, that creates some very um, bad incentives, bad governance, and it's just simply not in the interest of shareholders. And I, it, part, of the, part of the blame certainly lies with the C-suite that are building the boards in these ways. But I think a large part of the blame lies with shareholders that have passively accepted these outcomes. And to the extent that shareholders have been more engaged in governance, it's often engaged in governance to achieve certain social outcomes or uh, you know, that whole group of things that is now um, you know, listed under the rubric of, of, of ESG. But often, in many cases, that devalues this importance of the importance of financial alignment and shareholder directors that are really there to to uh, represent all shareholders. Okay. Well, one of the things I'm sort of getting here is, you know, that you've got the proverbial saying that money talks, and this is a very real example of money talking to the company, saying, look, there's certain things we're not happy with, and uh, I, I get the feeling that uh, you, you feel more investors should be vocal about things that actually concern them or actually impact their investments when uh, governance aspects aren't perhaps as good as they should be. Um, I'd like to sort of broaden out onto a sort of another theme now, the theme of mergers and acquisitions. Um, a lot of investors say there needs to be more consolidation in, in, in the precious metal space, in the, in, the, in the copper space and so on. Um, they want fewer names to deal with. Uh, but one of the things that seems to get in the way of of deals happening, you call it entrenched management, call it the uh, the golden parachute packages for change of control payments. Um, from your point of view, what, what do you see as being some of the sort of key things that are getting in the way of transactions happening? Well, I mean, you list some of the most important ones. So one, you have the social issues, which is, you know, if you uh, one company buys another, uh, you know, somebody's a bunch of guys are losing their jobs or directors are losing their jobs, uh, executives are losing their jobs. Um, that's often a hard sell, especially if 
their financial interests are really um, best served by keeping that company independent and continuing to pay themselves, whether it's uh, executive compensation, uh, salaries and bonuses, um, or director's fees. And they don't really own a lot of stock. So even if there's a premium in the deal, their financial interests aren't really aligned with shareholders because that's not how they're getting paid. And their their own narrow financial interests are misaligned with shareholders because they are best served by keeping those companies independent and separate. That's an enormous problem um, in the space. You see that um, companies that don't open their data rooms, companies that aren't for sale, companies that won't show deals to uh, their shareholders, uh, there's lots of ways that they can prevent um, merger and acquisition activity in the space uh, in a way that I think is unhealthy and doesn't serve shareholders. And then on the other side, you have instances where uh, directors really don't own stock and they're willing to pay far too large a premium for uh, a target company because, again, they uh, they will, uh, after the deal, be in charge of a a larger company, maybe even with better assets, but if they've destroyed value by overpaying, that's not really their concern if they don't own stock. And I think this is a um, an example that's really highlighted by the, the Goldfields uh, acquisition of Yamana, where they're paying a fancy premium. Um, and as a policy, the directors, the non-executive directors of Goldfields don't own stock in Goldfields. And so uh, it's really hard to, um, see them as the ultimate arbiters of whether this uh, this acquisition makes sense, given that it just they just really don't have any financial alignment with the directors of Goldfields. I mean, that's a that's a, a bit of a tough one. What, what, what can be done about this, do you think? What, what practice well, can, can be done every, about this? Every company. So in the case of South Africa, there's this very special crazy thing where companies are actually prohibiting their non-executive directors from owning stock. And uh, on the idea that directors are kind of a class they're kind of as a they're a priesthood that needs to represent all stakeholders and to represent all stakeholders that can't be biased with an aligned financial interest with shareholders which i think is exactly wrong right that's exactly what you shouldn't be doing that's going to create disastrous governance outcomes uh, what should be happening is the exact opposite of that was all these companies should be instituting lower bounds uh, for alignment of all directors, including non-executive directors, with shareholders. Uh, and that people that want to go into the business of being directors to make director's fees and don't want to have a financial alignment with the companies where they're serving as directors, they should go do something else. It's like me telling you you should give to a particular charity that I don't give to. It just doesn't make any sense. It's, they just shouldn't be on those boards. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm going to talk about executive compensation. If I may, because this, uh, you know, I, I focus a lot on the junior space and the developer space, and some executives seem to get paid an awful lot of money, equivalent to what large, you know, some of the salaries that you see in sort of larger gold producers. And again, you've got the golden parachute change of control payments. All of these things are approved by the board. Um, is this another potential instance of where you see? board members not being aligned with, with the shareholders because, again, they just tend to perhaps rubber stamp the executive compensation plan that comes across their desk uh, once a year. 100%. This is, this is another problem. I would say it's very uneven. I've seen um, executives be uh, incredibly uh, noble and honest in terms of their comp, 
and run organizations accepting less than what they could make um, elsewhere in the industry, bringing incredible, incredible competence and dedication to their job, and really doing it in the best interest of shareholders. And more often than that, I've seen exactly the type of dysfunction that you're talking about, where the uh, individuals are recruited to the board in part because they are there to go along, get along, they're in low conflict, they're affable, and they go along with the executive comp recommendations, which are often outsourced, and everybody's recommending the, the outsourced executive comp uh, industry is always recommending that everybody get paid a little bit more, and so you have this creep, and uh, you can get to comp levels that don't make a lot of sense. Okay, um, I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball at you, if I may, Sean, for the last question. A lot of companies I speak to in the gold space, um, you hear it again and again, I'm sure you hear it all the time, oh, we're undervalued. What do you say to a CEO that tells you that they're undervalued when it's the CEO's job to basically get the valuation up? Well, look, I mean, it's been a tough bear market. I mean, it's been a tough 10 years, but it's been a tough, you know, really tough two, two and change years since the summer of uh, 2020. Um, these companies are down a bunch. There's a number of these companies that trade at, you know, they have half their market cap in cash and they have cash flow, uh, free cash flow that they're generating even at today's gold prices. Um, you know, I don't want to hear executives whine about their undervaluation. I want to see them do something about it. And if you look at the recent recent deal signed between Elliot uh, and Kinross, you see that there is there are, you know, there's a solution to undervaluation of your of your shares. In many cases, you can distribute cash, stop reinvesting in low IRR projects, buy back stock, manage your company uh, in a more disciplined fashion when it comes to capital allocation. Uh, the fact that you need an activist investor in the room to get a company like Kinross to do that is part of the problem. So I think really, if uh, instead of whining about low share, their low share price, these uh, management should be looking at how they can take advantage of their low share prices to create value. And that's the kind of logic that will drive valuations higher, will show shareholders the discipline that these companies should have. Um, you know, we're still not there yet. Uh, as an industry. And I think part of getting there is getting better financial alignment between the, the whole board of directors and shareholders uh, should drive that process. Excellent. Thank you, Sean. This has been a, a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for joining me today, Sean. Um, Sean is Chief Investment Officer of Equinox Partners. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. And that's all for me, Paul Harris. Join us for more from Mining Stock Daily soon. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.